Welcome back to Living with the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. I'm Kathy Worzer. We've been talking about end-of-life planning because the COVID-19 pandemic has made that task important now more than ever before. But how do you know what kind of end-of-life care you'd like or what a loved one wants? It takes some thinking through the scenarios, and that can be tough. But it's also really hard to talk about death and dying. Ours is a death-denying culture, even in the best of times, much less a pandemic. How do you even start the conversation? Well, this podcast is for you. We've called on communications expert Carol Breeze. She's a Ph.D. and professor emerita of communication and journalism and formerly director of family studies at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. She's currently a resident scholar at St. Norbert College in Wisconsin. Our other guest, Christy Momarek. She's a certified end-of-life doula based in Minnesota. Ours was a wide-ranging conversation about having tough conversations. Professor Breeze says research shows there are common elements to all difficult conversations. Emotions are high, the stakes are high, and there are differences in opinion. And when we get to discussions about mortality and end of life, I mean, they are inherently highly emotional, high stakes conversations. And because mortality and death and dying is often a taboo topic for the majority of us in Western cultures, opinions vary about when and how and even if we should talk about it at all. So the research suggests that, yeah, these are difficult conversations because they have all of those elements. But there's good news here, too, because conversations, even difficult ones, are a set of skills that are highly learnable. And so I'm so glad we're having this conversation so that maybe people can you know, think about how to move into these conversations because they are necessary. I want to bring our friend Christy Momerick into the conversation here, Carol, because Christy is an end-of-life doula no stranger to having these difficult conversations. And so, Christy, you know, you heard Carol kind of succinctly lay this out for us, that there are three pretty common elements of all tough conversations. In your experience, does that ring true to you? Oh, absolutely. And (laughs) I love hearing it laid out succinctly because it is such an inherently messy process that to have it teased out really, I think, will help people to see beyond the mess into the elements and make it relatable rather than just this big, scary thing that's kind of looming for people to be having these conversations. Let's go back to Carol here. Can you expand upon that a little bit here, Carol, in terms of the elements to this successful conversation about something difficult like your mortality? I love breaking things down into uh, threes because we tend to remember things in threes. And again, I'm always leaning on the best research out there for how we can have difficult conversations. And some of this work that I like to lean on when I think about mortality and end-of-life conversations comes from Dr. Deborah Tannen of Georgetown University, who has written so profoundly about conversations with the people we love which is what these conversations are, right? We wouldn't be having them if we didn't love the people that we're we're talking with. And I also, as I thought about this podcast today, leaned on one of my favorite works by a group of business experts, actually, who wrote a book called Crucial Conversations. And from their work, there's actually 
three things that all successful conversations have in common. And I'll quickly share them and then maybe we can explore them a little bit more. The first thing is that the people in that conversation, they feel a sense of safety. So they feel there's a mutual respect that's being nurtured and felt. And that's so important, that first piece to have safety in the conversation. And then the second part of it, you'll hear that these three things are very related, but people feel heard, not argued with or talked at, but in these difficult conversations that people are feeling that what they're experiencing or their stories are being heard. And the third thing, which is so key, is that all successful, difficult conversations are conversations where the people in the conversation are adding to what we call a pool of shared meaning, which really is what dialogue is. Dialogue literally is defined as the free flow of meaning between two or more people. Mm -hmm. So when you start to think about, all right, how might this, what might this look like, this successful conversation on the topic of, you know, end of life, I would suggest thinking about okay, how can I create with the people I love an opportunity for all of us to add to this pool of shared meaning, to create a safe space for everyone to share what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're fearing, what their story is without evaluating each other for those fears or beliefs, or even our trepidation about entering into that conversation. Christy, what do you think of this? I think you and I have actually talked about this before, but it's like the doorways. What are the relevant avenues that allow us to step through the door into the conversation rather than, you know, some people probably like the sneak attack. I'm not a fan. (laughs) So I think looking for those opportunities to, you know, to just begin And once you have a place to begin, it will just hopefully naturally evolve. So I agree. And I think what's so interesting is very often in my work, I end up having these conversations with the individuals, either the ones who are dying or particular loved ones, because they kind of are feeling you know, that trepidation. How do I move into this conversation with my loved one when I'm not even sure how I'm feeling yet and not even feeling safe with their own evaluation of their situation or how to present it? You know, so we get a little bit of a trial run to help them get more comfortable with what their ideas are about end of life and how they can then present and kind of, you know, dive into the mess, so to speak, with their loved ones. And so I think that that helps make the stakes a little less high. It helps them start to process their emotions around what their wishes are, what's okay to ask for, what's not okay to ask for. I feel like my role in that is to help normalize what they're feeling and also to let them know that it's okay to ask for what they want. And, you know, so then when we pull other members of the family or the circle of support into the conversation, there's already a sense of safety. 
Sometimes I'm there as sort of a neutral observer and can somehow direct those conversations. And sometimes it's just enough to, you know, the fact that we've talked about it buoys them enough that when they broach the subject with their loved ones, I mean, sometimes this is about how, you know, the person who is dying, who's has this illness is deciding that maybe they're done with treatment and, you know, talk about something that's very emotional. So it's important to have an opportunity to kind of try that on first with somebody, see what the reaction is and come up with a little bit of a plan of how to move forward with bringing that topic that feels very taboo, you know, where there's a lot of difference of opinion to bring that to the rest of the family. I want to go back to what Carol said, because it's the pool of shared meaning that I'm wondering about. Not That pool could be rife with sharks and <laughs> roiling water. I mean, the shared meeting part is difficult, I would think. You know, there are people who come to any conversation with differing opinions and needs and, you know, background, right? So how do you get to that pool of shared meaning? I'm a little confused by that, Carol. It's such a great concept when you can start to envision, you know, let's say there's four or five people coming to a conversation and each of us has been sort of swimming in our own personal pool of meaning because we all have one, right? And it's based on our beliefs and our emotions and our own stories and experiences. And we often, until we're challenged or we feel pain or need to have these conversations, we might not often be able to identify what's in even that personal pool of meaning. But if you picture, let's say, five people around what is going to become a shared pool of meaning and a space where each person is being invited to put something in that pool from their own pool. So it becomes this pool of meaning. It provides this space where each person can take on, hopefully, this is the ideal, right? A stance of curiosity. Like, wow, I didn't know that you were feeling this way or thought this way. And so when we create a context for a safe, difficult conversation, in so many ways, it's approaching each other with curiosity of saying, I want to hear what you're thinking. I want to hear your views. And in so many ways, it comes right down to what some of the experts have called the hardest of the easiest task, which is listening which is really wanting to listen with your body and your heart and your mind and not listening so that you can get your point made or you can argue what you want or you can evaluate what the other person is saying, but truly listening. And when we invite others to add to what becomes a shared pool of meaning, so this, you know, we take our own meaning and put it out there. And when others listen with a stance of curiosity our family members are more willing than to even share more, to become more vulnerable. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I like the imagery and the research shows it works. You know, and I think it's important too, because difficult conversations are not something that a lot of us have practice with, to have a model to come into this and, you know, have some simple ideas about how can I do this? So I love that idea of coming to the conversation with a stance of curiosity. 
And it's even helpful sometimes to say that out loud, to state that explicitly to your loved ones, to say, you know, and there's so many ways to open this. I love how Christy was always talking about the soft, gentle opening. But to even say out loud, like, you know, I'm not here to try to convince you of anything. I'm here with curiosity about how you're thinking about this. And I'm hoping you'll be open to and curious about how I'm thinking and feeling about these topics. You got to be willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. Pretty tough to do sometimes, especially when you're talking about something so difficult as our mortality, serious illness, terminal illness, you know, end of life wishes. That willingness to be vulnerable is difficult. But if I hear you right, to try to take that curious approach, be vulnerable, that offers a measure of safety to everyone in the group that they can also do the same. Exactly. It's so crucial to think about this notion of emotional safety in any conversation. But when the stakes are high and the emotions are high, and like Kathy, you were just saying, for many families, being vulnerable and talking about feelings isn't something that we're used to. It's not part of our family rule structure, so which makes this even more difficult, which creates an even greater opportunity to think really mindfully about how we can create safety, meaning creating a place for this conversation where people don't feel evaluated, where they don't feel as afraid. Because as the authors of Crucial Conversations say, nothing kills the flow of meaning like fear. And so when someone feels really afraid of how others are evaluating what their wishes are, or even being in this conversation, it's very likely that fear increases and safety feelings decrease. So people are not as willing to continue to share what they're thinking, to share in that pool of meaning. Mm. Christy, in your experience, how has this worked for you and your clients, creating this kind of cocoon of safety, as it were? Absolutely. There's having group, you know, having family meetings is just a tremendous way to set that scene. Carol, when you were talking, I was just thinking of this lovely image of, you know, how do we offer the invitation And how do we create that space and invite people in? And part of what I do is around some ground rules. And without making it sound like, you know, here's a very rule-bound conversation. But the invitation is exactly what Carol was saying, is we are here to share ideas and to share our feelings about what's happening and about how we can move forward together in a way that everybody feels heard. And it's really also about getting everybody on the same team. So if we're rallying around somebody who's ill, we want that person to feel supported. And sometimes that means we have to wrangle with our own feelings around what's happening first. And so part of what I invite people into is you know, we'll have these conversations and they won't always be, and most of the time they're not single conversations. So if emotions start running really high and we're not really in a position to kind of pull, pull people back in, then we table it and we come back. 
I think it's true that what Carol was saying about fear as kind of, you know, destroying that sense of safety, it doesn't mean don't have your feelings, but it also means we need to be aware of what we tend to do when we're afraid, you know? So if our threshold has been met and we're kind of pushing our own edge of what we can take in, in a particular moment, curiosity isn't always available. And so sometimes we need to step back and take a break and agree that we'll come back and do it again. And part of that is letting people know that hopefully, you know, this isn't a personal thing, but we all have our own capacity and our own skill around how we show up to these conversations as well. I think what's interesting about being sort of a neutral presence in that scenario is being able to mirror back for people what is being said, offer some perspective perhaps about the emotion that's coming up. I wish you could see my face right now because I'm nodding, just, uh, <laughs> just like nodding and smiling and like, yes, Christy. Um if it's okay if I jump in, I'm thinking about two things. I'm so happy that there are people like Christy out there doing this work because, you know, moving into even the first conversation about end of life is so hard. And because it's so hard, so many families, they're not going to do it alone or they wouldn't do it if they didn't have someone like Christy to guide them. And Christy, you're speaking about what happens when our emotions are running high. And one of the things that we know from all of the research in family dynamics is that when our emotions run high, when our adrenaline kicks up, we tend to default as human beings, as human communicators into what's easiest, which is criticism. So when our emotions are running high, it's so much easier to state things that we don't want and that we don't like. And it's a lot harder to frame things more positively in in terms of what we do want and what we do need. And the research shows us that when we criticize someone else, when we state what we don't want or what we don't like about what we're hearing, what tends to happen is the other people around that pool or that conversation are likely to get defensive. And it's this centrifugal force of negativity. And so like what you were saying about iterations of these conversations and knowing that it's okay to take a break and then come back to the conversation. Because one of the key ways we can make it safe enough for others to come to these difficult conversations is to transform our criticisms into wishes. So for instance, we might get really frustrated about the person in the conversation who doesn't want to talk about this. And it's easy to criticize, especially when we get a little more upset and say something like, you know, you never want to talk about these hard things. We're all going to die. And it's shifting that into a wish statement, build safety, something positive like, I want to be able to talk about these hard things. I want to be able to hear what some of your fears about death are. 
and you can, your shoulders are probably going down a little bit just hearing that. I know mine were like the, the difference between turning our criticism into a wish statement is something that is not going to happen very easily when the emotions are high. Right. So having Christy there to help or having iterations of these conversations so that we can come back to them when we're a little bit less emotional, or even we've had time to process what we heard in the last conversation. Can I ask, you know, this comes from being the eldest kid in my family, and there always seems to be someone in a family that takes the reins when it comes to tough conversations or kind of leading the way. Maybe this is just my family, so I shouldn't make a generalization, but, you know, there seems to be in every family unit, someone who just is the one that's in the front leading things in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering this. So to your point, and Christy chime in here too, how do you handle if you're the one that is a family leader and the individual in question, we're, we're talking about end of life wishes, we're going through the advanced care directive and that person's not listening to you, you know, it's like, how do you fight the, I know best kind of stance that some people take? Yeah. Christy, do you want to begin? So Kathy, you're talking about maybe becoming more forceful because feeling like maybe you're not being heard or, you know, that you should be heard because that's your role in the family. I think having that neutral presence allows for people to step out of their roles a little bit and certainly being able to facilitate that conversation in a way that everyone gets equal airplay and that sort of thing. And another way that shows up for me in my work is making allies in a way with those, with the family dynamic. If there's no Christy Merrick in the room, <laughs> the neutral individual, and you have a family unit, right? How can you navigate family dynamics where sometimes there's a person who is maybe a stronger personality in that room and who maybe others tend to have in the past looked to them for decision making, right? So how, if there's no Christy in the room to help maybe moderate how can family dynamics be a part of this and still get to having a safe, meaningful conversation? What comes to mind immediately is the notion that we have to do what's called meta-communicate. And I'll explain what that is. So when we come into a difficult conversation, it's so easy to focus on the content, you know, like, okay, what are the decisions that need to be made? And, and how are we going to do this? Who's going to sign these papers? And, and, you know, but meta communication is about talking about the dynamics of the talk. So in every family system, like Kathy, you described, people come to the conversation having played a certain role or set of roles. And we've all followed a certain set of rules, often implicit, you know, not clearly stated over time. And we tend to default right to those roles. And so talking about how we're even talking, what are some of the ground rules, like Christy said earlier, for having this, what might be a new conversation. So making explicit some of the ways that we're going to enter into this conversation in a way that likely that family has not done before. So it's a whole level of discomfort 
but a necessary one as we come into these conversations to say, okay, in the past, you know, here's maybe how we've done these conversations. Could we take a little bit of time to talk about how we want to go about this? Each person maybe gets a certain time to share their thoughts or feelings and everyone else's role is to just listen. So it's about talking about the talk, which is it is hard, right? Because most of the rules for talking we've taken for granted in our families. Christy, I know you've dealt with family dynamics in your career. So yes. maybe can we kind of circle this back to you? Absolutely. I think what is really useful when either a family, you know, might not want me to be a part of that conversation because they want to do it themselves, then there's a little coaching involved and maybe even a little script about exactly what Carol was talking about. What are the ground rules to step into this conversation? And even in my role, having sort of connected with the person who might have the levelest head (laughs) in the conversation to coach that person, you know, so that's one of the ways that it shows up in my work. I know on a personal level, I would have loved to have had some sort of script, some sort of doorway, some sort of entree into these hard conversations because I have had to have a number of them around my my mother's health and my grandma just passed away about 18 months ago and in that conversation as well. There's just, there's a lot. And sometimes there is the go-to person and is the go-to person the one who can oh, have the insight into wanting to steer the conversation in a way where everyone's included or, you know, who else does that fall to? So even in this conversation, we're assuming that there's somebody who will be able to direct the way. And, you know, so for whoever's listening, I hope that you are the person (laughs) who can do this and, you know, that we can create tools and provide insight here for how to move that forward. I love listening to both of you. You're just such smart, wise women, you know, because how many interviews have I done about end of life planning? Everyone says it's all about the conversation, multiple conversations, and everyone nods their head and says, yep, that's right. But (laughs) there doesn't seem to be a real path forward, you know, and now against the backdrop of this pandemic, how are things maybe a little different with the pressure of time? Yeah, I would say that we are certainly in a place of opportunity to to try this on. So certainly the risk is real, but also for a lot of us who may be really leaning into this stay-at-home directive and aren't going out much and have lowered our risk quite a bit, we're still in a place of hypothetical. And actually, you know, the hypothetical space is you know, and this is what we talk about a lot, is really the place where you want to be having the conversation Mm -hmm. because it feels like the stakes aren't quite as high. The emotions aren't quite as high. It just feels, it can feel less threatening, I guess. 
And so what the COVID situation lends us to is a little bit of an in-between, right? So we're not in the high stress of needing to make immediate wishes, you know, immediate plans for somebody who might be dying within the next couple of weeks, you know, in terms of another kind of illness. And it's not completely benign, right? So there is this higher level of risk that we're kind of playing with or facing. And so I think we can have these conversations in a way that feels a little more real. Like we can't just maybe ignore it because it actually isn't a threat because it is. And so it just, I don't know, it's just kind of this really interesting in-between space that allows it to be important and and in your face, just, you know, just in case something were to happen if someone were to get sick. But at the same time, it's still in that sort of in-between hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christy, I love when you talk about this time being an opportunity, you know, an opportunity for so many things. And when we think about our family systems, when we think about our care for each other, when we think about feeling motivated to make that human connection, maybe motivation to broach a topic that we haven't wanted to in the past or that we know is going to be difficult, that maybe this is this opportunity. You know, I always think about this notion that conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we do. And expressing curiosity or interest in another person is one of the most powerful messages that that person matters. And so perhaps this is an opportunity right now to make a phone call. You know, maybe it's to an aunt or to your one of your parents or a sibling and say, hey, you know, this is a really might seem out of the blue. I just, you know, thinking a lot about the thousands and thousands of people who are losing their loved ones. And, you know, we've never talked about this. What are, you, what are you thinking or what are you feeling? So I love that notion of opportunity. And I know, Kathy, you asked the question about how to do this quickly when, when you have to. And I ask that because, you know, we've all heard the stories, seen the stories on TV. Someone gets sick. They say, oh, bring your advanced care directive to the ER because you'll be by yourself. You know, there seems to be this pressure of time right now. Well, right. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for those families who are faced with that immediacy of, oh my goodness, you know, we are in a crisis and we we need to talk with our loved one immediately. In so many ways, I think some of these same things apply. The timeline is just crunch, you know, come with a stance of curiosity. And remember that understanding does not equate with agreement, but to honor what others want and how their understanding their lives and their wishes is one of the most loving acts that we can offer the people around us. And and I would say healing. Mm -hmm. I have to say it can be healing too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I started the conversation talking about looking for the doorway and COVID is the doorway. This is the opportunity we have to start the conversation. You know, even if people already have their advanced directives, can we start talking about what 
what would you feel about being on a respirator now? You know, the, the situation is a little bit different. We don't always have the same experiences that, we're, that we have access to, the things that we're thinking about, the scenarios that we're playing out, you know, particularly with advanced care directives. Even trying to imagine a situation if you're healthy and vital of needing to be on a respirator. What does that look like? And what values and beliefs and experiences play into what we imagine we might actually want in a scenario like that? And how is COVID different from maybe another situation where you may end up on a ventilator? There are really crucial pieces of information that are out there right now, just endless articles. You know, if any of us know somebody who has been touched personally with COVID, whether themselves or whether somebody else has been ill, or maybe they've lost somebody, that's a doorway to be able to say, you know, to your spouse or your kids or your parents, remember so-and-so, they just lost somebody. This isn't, this isn't so far away anymore. So what does that look like? And what what do you believe about that? Or what do you feel about that? And how can we use this as a tool to really come to some important decisions? And it's not all set in stone, but because we've had the conversations, we've tried this scenario on and we've made some choices, then that will only influence the conversations that we have going forward. I was just nodding my head again as I was thinking about, Christy, what you were saying about these doorways and these opportunities for conversation right now. I would suggest even for families with, you know, grade school age children or high school age children or like in my own house right now, I have two young adult children at home, a college student and a recent college grad. And I've taken, and I hope others will take this opportunity to talk about exactly what Ended Mind is all about. Talk about our mortality. Talk about some of these possible scenarios. I mean, developmentally appropriately, of course, but what an opportunity this is right now to shift our cultural narrative about death in our own families, to take away some of that taboo by starting, you know, to address the reality that so many other families are facing. So that notion of trying these scenarios on is so beautiful to say, you know, what if I were, you know, in this situation? What do you think you'd feel? You know, and here's what I would, here's what I would like. Here's what I think I would want. I just think it's such an opportunity right now in all of our families to have a conversation or series of them that we haven't in the past and that can set the table for the next conversation. Really, you've given us a lot to think about. It's terrific. So many beautiful things have been said here. And I love coming to the conversation with curiosity and inviting and to just then, you know, don't argue and just come with, as you say, Carol, a stance of pure curiosity. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Christy, again, thank you for what you do too. You really are a beautiful spirit in this world. I appreciate everything that you do. Oh, thank you for Kathy having these conversations and Christy for the work you do. It's so important. It's really changed the way that I think about living. 
I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you, Carol, and to pull these pieces together, you know, to have that practical, (laughs) well-researched, you know, framework for what it is that we're doing. I think it helps us engage the conversations with a different part of our being so that it isn't all just in our head. Professor Carol Brees and Christy Momerick, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. Absolutely my pleasure. Mine as well. Thank you. Professor Carol Brees is a resident scholar in the Cassandra Voss Center for Equity, Identity, and Dialogue Across Difference at St. Norbert College in Wisconsin. And Christy Momerick is a certified end-of-life doula and board member of End in Mind. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you think of this limited edition podcast by sending us a note to info at endinmindproject.org. I'm Kathy Warzer. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay curious. Stay curious.